I'm fucking livid that we are stuck in the timeline where Alex Jones is right. Why aren't the Amish afraid of, of COVID? Because they don't have TV. As I said, democracy is a system that reinforces authoritarian ideals. I hope I don't get canceled. Talk to you. Being a victim of a tragedy doesn't make you an expert in public policy. But, I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full <laughs> of shit. Remember, they lost the Afghan war 10 years ago. <laughs> you brought a freaking guillotine. They said, you don't get to tell us no, we're in the state health department, and I said, hell no. It wasn't making Christianity better, it was making rock worse. Uh, <laughs> what what the fuck do you have on your face, Olivia? You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies, and raise them to not be stupid. I remember thinking, man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, shit posters, and people of the internet, thanks for tuning in to another episode of O'Donnell for Liberty. As always, I'm your host, Justin. And before we get started, just remember whatever platform you listen on, whether YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or on LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and sharing with your friends. And if you enjoy the content, you can join our production team by visiting patreon.com slash O'Donnell for Liberty. Again, that's patreon.com O'Donnell for Liberty. And make sure to check out snackswag.com for all your favorite Liberty merch, including some brand new designs for t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, coffee mugs, tote bags, and more. Again, that's snackswag.com, where you can check out the awesome new collection of hoodies to get yourself ready for the colder weather this year. If you want to keep in touch between shows, follow me on social media and join our community Discord channel where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time. All these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast you're listening to, as well as on O'Donnell4Liberty.com. So check the description for that link and make sure you check it out today. And get yourself ready, grab your popcorn, strap in. It's going to be a fun show tonight with tonight's guest, one of the Liberty Movement's most well-known power couples and founder of Free the People, Matt and Terry Kibbe. Guys, thanks for joining. How are you tonight? Thanks, Justin. We are doing great. Winter has winter has not just coming. Winter is here. It's getting super cold out, but that just means the holidays are coming. So That's funny you're telling the dude from New Hampshire that. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, I, I know. Hey, today getting... was our first cold day. Oh, really? In my opinion, I'm a cold weather fan myself. I, I love the colder weather. I hate the summer. Um, the one bad thing about Porkfest is that it just gets hot and I hate it for me. Um, but today was the first day where I went outside. I'm like, wow, I might need to put pants on. <laughs> we're, we're getting ready. We're driving up to Vermont tomorrow for our annual trek to cut down our um, yeah, five Christmas trees. So I was looking at the Ooh. weather and Jesus, it's cold up there. Yeah, well, it's... I don't know. It, the worst part today is the wind, and that's the only part I re- that gets bad in the winter here is the wind. I can handle the cold. I can put on more clothes. It's fine. It's only the wind and when it gets windy. And uh, like me, I live right next to the river in Manchester. It gets really windy. So that's the only thing I don't like. Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and Matt grew up in Erie. So we're, we like the snow. We like cold. <laughs> <laughs> So there's no excuse to not move to New Hampshire. All the people that oh, complain about the free start. Yeah, it, it's funny because the, the the running joke now that the most common excuse people give when they say they can't move for the free state project is that they don't like the weather. And Jeremy Kaufman has started responding, well, if all that stands between you and liberty is a jacket, I guess. <laughs> that's too much for us. I don't um, know. Our, we're, we're, we're literally two blocks from the Capitol, and I... 
I just feel really good know, knowing that my overlords are just a stone's throw away. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it makes it easier to keep a watch on them, I guess. Yeah, um, well, I don't know. They're watching me, I suspect. Yeah, so when, when Congress is in session late at night, the light at the top of the Capitol Dome is on, and that was designed originally um, before there was, like, really means of communication so that wives would know when their, that their you know, husbands who were working were actually working late. Um, but now we like to say that when that light is on and Congress is working late, that liberty is truly not safe because anything that they pass late at night is just generally awful. And I mean, usually it during worse the day than too. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say anything they pass is generally awful. Yeah. It can only be worse if they're waiting till nobody can call them out or on in a news cycle. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I guess being close to the Capitol must make it easier when you're doing stuff like what you do with Free the People, because that's where like the center of politics and nonprofit work is. Like, what's the best, or like, what? How did you guys start and go down the road to get to where you are with Free the People? Um, well, I was, I was, I was born a small child. <laughs> yeah. One cold, one hot summer day. I was born in Pittsburgh and that was born in Florida. No, <laughs> uh, we, we moved to Washington DC area, uh, right out of college, right. Uh, after we got married, I came down here to go to graduate school at George Mason mm -hmm. university. Terry got a job as an engineer and very much supported my ass for the first two or three years while I was pretending to be an academic. Let's not forget, we actually moved down here before we were married and may or may not have lied to the priest about our various addresses when we were getting ready for. Yeah, we, we, but we've been, we've been together forever and we've been married for almost ever. And, uh, how many I've, years? Uh, 35. <laughs> I'm um, only 32. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I got it. Kid, kids today. Um, but, you know, I was uh, um, some people have certainly heard this story. I, I've been a libertarian since I was 13 years old. I was reading the, the notes on a uh, the liner notes on a rock album from the band Rush 2112. A lot of libertarians know about this album because it's dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand. I didn't know who that was when I was 13, but I stumbled across one of her books, Anthem. And it sort of ruined my life because if you read a lot of Ayn Rand, she will tell you to read Ludwig von Mises. And I was doing that in high school and it is a horrible way to meet chicks. It, like, I don't, I don't recommend it to anybody. And Terry and I met um, at Grove City College and uh, she was probably always a libertarian, but to, to be around me, she had to to start reading the books and, and he, he bought me the fountainhead as our first Chris, like as a Christmas present. The At least it Christmas. wasn't Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. <laughs> well, since I'm an engineer, he thought I would um, like the fountainhead a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but, but so we, we've always been libertarians. Um, we're not, we, we don't have some sort of conversion story about, about not being a libertarian. And uh, I, I originally moved to D.C. Terry's a year younger than I am, so she was still in college. I moved to D.C. to go to graduate school. I thought I was going to be a professor of economics. Um, but the Death Star got me, and I got sucked into public policy and politics here inside the Beltway. And, and I've been that oddball libertarian, uh, sort of trying to make change ever since. 
Well, and my path is even more bizarre. I mean, as Matt said, I, I have an engineering degree and I worked as an engineer for the first 12 or 13 years of my career. Since it's DC, it was the defense industry, right? Which was a soul sucking endeavor. Yep. And it, at some point I was just like, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. So I made the ridiculous decision to leave a very well-paying engineering job and move into um, public policy and nonprofits. So I started my career um, actually as a, as a fundraiser. I worked on Capitol Hill for a while, but I was a fundraiser at the Cato Institute and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And eventually, when Matt was at FreedomWorks, which he founded, um, one of his board members asked a question at a board meeting as to why was I raising money for all of these other organizations and not raising money for FreedomWorks. <laughs> and my response was, well, I heard that the CEO, meaning Matt, was kind of a pain to work for, and I wasn't really sure I wanted to do that. Um, but, they, story. <laughs> but they eventually convinced me to come on and um, work for them. But you know, our, our, our project, and I think it's been consistent throughout our entire involvement in public policy, is we, we're always focused on reaching a broader audience. I started off as an academic and, and you know, I was speaking to maybe a dozen interesting Austrian economists who, who I very much uh, respected. And, and I think maybe 89, 90, I wrote my first Wall Street Journal op-ed and I just, I just did the numbers because back then the Wall Street Journal was, was sort of the Bible. There, was, there wasn't all this stuff that we do today. And, and I, I ran the numbers to see how many people I could reach um, by, by publishing an op-ed. And then I just kept following those breadcrumbs because you know the, the goal in life as a libertarian is not to just sit in your basement and be pure. The, the goal is to engage people to turn other people on to these really cool ideas we love. And you know that eventually led to the founding of, of FreedomWorks, which was all about grassroots organization, all about engaging people on these ideas of liberty. Um, but you know, back then, like when FreedomWorks was founded, there was no internet. Um, and there certainly wasn't this robust social media um, community that, that we have today. So the, the logic of free the people was very much almost the opposite of what we did at FreedomWorks because we were we were sort of doing cadre building the, the way the yep. left thinks about it. And with Free the People, we, we imagine an ability to reach very broad audiences across political spectrums, across ideologies, um, people that would never read all those dorky books that I read when I was a kid. So we, we focus on, on communication and storytelling and, and really really getting in getting at people's emotions instead of instead of the the logic that that most libertarians suffer from it's 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 sort of a realization that we're the weirdos um, we sorry if, sorry <laughs> if anyone's offended by that but you know most people process information through their emotions and their neighbors and their friends and and if we can figure out how to do that which is what we're trying to do at free the people there's an opportunity to to really turn on um people globally to these ideas and and that that to me is the project i love that entirely and when i was on the lnc and worked with the libertarian party full-time and i traveled to conventions the talk i gave at conventions was very much the same it's like you don't reach people by re showing them charts you don't reach people by reciting academic papers you tell them stories that they can empathize with and that's how you get to people who didn't come here logically on their own and so many libertarians when you ask them how they come to libertarianism and how they came to libertarianism they'll start rattling off the books they read right um, 
me, I still have not managed to finish Atlas Shrugged. I'm 32. I can't get through it. It's a terrible book. I I got about 20 pages into Four New Liberty and I put it down. It annoyed me. The first book I actually got through was in 2013, right when I left the military or decided to leave the military and decided I wanted to get involved politically after my experience with the Boston Marathon bombing and the lockdowns and participating in martial law in Boston on 4th of July. I had decided that I wanted to get involved politically and work against that. The first book a friend handed to me was actually Hostile Takeover. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's when they tried to drag me into the Republican Party. And I ended up working for Mitt Romney for a bit. <laughs> and Look, we all have skeletons. Right. And then it, it took me until 2016 until I gave up on the uh, Republican Party. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I still haven't read books. It's p- the people that I've worked with that have made me the libertarian I am, not the books I've read. And that's what I really love about what you guys are doing with Free the People, because it's something it's I feel like is completely lost on the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian movement in this co- country. And the the joke that uh, we should rename it the Asperger's Party because people don't know how to communicate outside of their own little echo chamber. It sometimes feels like it's not a joke. Yeah. yeah. You know, whenever I um, give a talk, I I kind of freak out the audience because I, I quote AOC and there's like usually <laughs> gasps, right? But she she said once that it's better to be morally right than to be factually correct. Which is a really scary thought. And that's kind of what the left focuses on. Like they don't really care about the facts, but they tell these heart-wrenching stories about, you know, a girl that couldn't get an operation that she needed because right. we didn't have universal health care, right? And our side holds up spreadsheets and graphs that says, but look, universal healthcare is going to cost so much money. But we have equally moral stories, far more better stories to tell about people who actually got the healthcare that they needed because of the innovations that were allowed to happen in free markets. And we need to tell those stories more. So I, so we actually, I'm going to make a plug here. So for the people, we saw really cool stuff, this t-shirt that he has on, but we also made a t-shirt in response to AOC's comment, which is morally right and factually correct. Um, but we have to focus on the morals and the personal stories and not so much on facts and figures and, and you know, graphs. Yeah, and she's, she's all emotion. And she she has, has totally mastered the art of, of sort of emotional manipulation on social media. And, and our contention is that you can you can actually understand how to use social media effectively you can be conscious of the language that you're using in hopes of connecting with audiences that use very different words than libertarians do, all the while not compromising or selling out or abandoning your principles. I don't, I don't think you have to choose between one and the other, um, but if you're not aware and, and listening to your audience and just trying to sort of beat them into submission with your, with your libertarian dialectic, you're you're not doing anybody any favors. You're probably chasing them over to the other side. Yeah, and I I don't think that the Libertarian Party and the Liberty Movement is absent people who could make those cases. I think there are some incredible examples within the Liberty Movement at large of people who make incredibly compelling emotional cases. They tend to be our single issue advocates, people who came to the Liberty Movement for a particular reason that they're passionate about. Like Lynn Ulrich is one of the most incredibly passionate and emotional criminal justice reform advocates I've ever met. Yeah. Um, 
and that's because she speaks to it from a personal place. Adam Kakesh is one of the most passionate and emotional anti-war activists I've ever met because it's something that's personal to him that he can tell stories about, that can connect with people. And then we have Gary Johnson, who's just emotional, dry, and will reference, well, it works. Then trust me, it works. We have a plan. <laughs> yeah. One of the, the very first projects that we did at Free the People, and I'm actually really proud of this because it was our first formal foundation grant, and we got it from the Aspen Institute, which is about as progressive as, as you can get, right? And so people, when they think of libertarians, they think that we're more on the right. Um, so I'm very proud of, of that grant. And it was given to us to tell um, four or five stories about individuals who made a difference um, in their lives and their communities. And the first story that we told is a woman named Christine Stenquist, who started out her journey as a progressive, but I'm now happy to say is an actual libertarian. And her story is fascinating. She is a medical cannabis advocate. Um, about 15 years ago, maybe longer now, um, she was diagnosed with brain cancer and had surgery to remove brain tumors. And the surgery didn't go well. Um, she died on the table. She came back, but suffered horrible chronic and acute pain and couldn't function. Um, she was taking tons of opioids. They weren't helping her. Um, she, she talks about raising her children from, from the couch. She just couldn't do anything. Um, and then she started reading about medical cannabis. And um, ironically, she had to ask her father for permission to do this because he was a DEA agent in Miami in like the, the 80s and the 90s. And I like, participated in like one of the largest cocaine busts there. So she kind of felt compelled that she had to ask him. And so she started using medical cannabis and she got her life back. And so she then went on to focus all of her energies on allowing medical cannabis to become legalized. And she's from the state of Utah. And she was one of the main um, people that helped get medical cannabis legalized in that state. And she did it by using other patient advocates like herself. And she now is travels around the country and works in various states um, to help legalize cannabis for, for people. She's actually doing a lot of work with the LP in Montana. Mm -hmm. Um, well, she was, I think the session is over now. So it's, um, but you know, if you, if you can turn medical cannabis into a family values story in Utah, you're going to connect with audiences that might have a visceral sort of negative reaction to the idea of people being free to do that. And that's, that's sort of like part of our mantra is just, just listening and figuring out where people are actually coming from. And I, I sort of learned this the hard way because I'm I am a kind of a doctrinaire libertarian and I, I know all the, the words and phrases and and you like to quote all the dead economists. I love to quote <laughs> dead, dead people, but I was at a uh a progressive gathering. I was I was sort of the token libertarian at this progressive gathering, and it was it was closed door off the record, so people were speaking candidly about projects they were working on. And and I, I realized quite quickly that even though they were speaking perfect English, I had no idea what they were saying because they, they used all this jargon that didn't make any sense to me. And then I thought about it for a second and I said, you know, when I'm with my libertarian buddies, we do the same damn thing. <laughs> and, you know, imagine how ineffective that might be for people that don't know your secret handshakes and don't know your yeah, we, we can have a full-blown conversation at Porkfest and the girl working the counter has no clue what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And maybe it's better that she doesn't know because 
it gets pretty weird at Porkfest. <laughs> yeah. Um, but okay, well, speaking of Porkfest, and I told you right before we started, the reason I reached out to Matt, I wanted you guys to come on the show uh at Porkfest. And anybody who's come to Porkfest regularly knows I'm definitely more into the party side of Porkfest than the pavilion side of Porkfest. Uh, I go to Porkfest to hang out with my friends and just get wild. It's my two-week vacation for the year. And if I black out at some point, that's things going according to plan. I had to sober up for one day to give a presentation at Pork Tank and pitch my nonprofit. And I ended up competing against Terry in Pork Tank. And so it was the one thing I was sober enough to hear all of Porkfest was your pitch for your restorative <laughs> I'm, justice I'm really project. I'm really sorry for that. <laughs> and I was fascinated because I'd never heard anything like it. Can you tell, like, what's going on? What's the backstory with that? Sure. So um, our team, uh, so our team's made up of a bunch of video guys and creative people, um, unlike myself, the reformed engineer. And we, we made a video um, about this gorgeous project in Longmont, Colorado um, on restorative justice. And what restorative justice is, is it takes um, offenders out of the traditional government run criminal justice system and puts them into a private, um, almost mediation type atmosphere where the accused and the victim actually get together. Uh, the accused party, the responsible party, as they call him, actually has to take personal responsibility for what he did and, and come to some sort of agreement with the victim and with a group of people from the, the local community. It's a partnership between the Longmont Community Justice Partnership, the police and the community, and they work together and come up with a way for the offender to make amends for his crime. It keeps them completely out of the traditional justice system. And by doing that, it keeps them from becoming repeat offenders. I mean, if you get arrested for petty crime, you go to jail, you get out of jail, you have a record, you can't get a job. So the only way that you can make a living is to rob somebody else. So you go back to jail. And so I think the recidivism rate for traditional criminal justice programs is 40%, 60%. It's ridiculously high. But through this restorative justice program, and they've been doing it for 20 years, their recidivism rate is only 1% or even less than 1%. Um, it's, it's not an easy process to go through. There's a story about a guy who was convicted or arrested for a violent crime and he was given the opportunity of going through a restorative justice program or going through the traditional, you know, horrible, hostile court environment and then going to jail. And he said, I can't face my victim. I can't take that kind of responsibility for what I did. And he actually chose to go to prison because he thought that was the easier path forward. A lot of That's these, wild. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of these traditions come from, from native American communities and, and more, more uh, concentrated communities all over the globe that had to make their, their communities work. And you can imagine that mass incarceration doesn't work. Um, it's it's a very modern phenomenon. Um, it used to be the case that you had to work it out, and people had to be held accountable, and and most importantly, the victim had to be made whole. So there's there's a lot of core principles in this that that are fundamentally libertarian, um, and and even the idea of taking it out of the government system, which which actually encourages incarceration and and encourages people to, to, to get into that cycle of recidivism, this, this is radically different. 
And and I think we originally were drawn to it, not just for those principles, but because it was attractive to people across the political spectrum. Um, progressives are very interested in that, but so are evangelicals who believe in redemption. Yeah, I mean, the, the progressives like it because it keeps, it stops feeding the prison industrial complex, right? Right. So, so we made this this beautiful video. It tells some, you know, stories of um, offenders that actually went through the program and how it helped them and, and changed their lives. And we premiered it last year during the lockdown, um, right after George Floyd happened and, you know, criminal justice system was in the news a lot. And we showed it to hundreds of thousands of people online. But most importantly, one of our supporters, a fantastic guy named Seth Levy, some of you may know who I he know is, yep. <laughs> he watched the video and he said, I want to bring this to Eagle County, Colorado. And so in the middle of the pandemic, he organized a socially distant COVID appropriate showing at a pop-up drive-in theater. Um, and when I say pop-up drive-in theater, I mean like it, the screen was one of those blow up inflatable things. Um, like we had for Workfest? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit bigger than that, but yes, the same concept. Um, and we ha he got all of the right people there. He had like, I don't know, six or seven police cars pulled in the first time I was ever happy to see that at one of my events, because usually I'm like, oh, geez, what do I do now? Um, but in this case, it was good. He had um, politicians, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, uh, local DAs. Um, one local sheriff actually found out about this and scheduled a compulsory mandatory meeting for his cops and then ended up having to cancel his mandatory meeting because all the cops came to our show. Um, and, but we also brought in the three, two of the three main characters from the, the documentary, um, Kathleen McGooey, who runs, who ran the Longmont Community Justice Partnership and Officer Stacy, Stacy Stallings, who is a fantastic officer who was very instrumental in working um, with the system. So we did a, the showing and then afterwards we had a, a question and answer and presentation. And it was actually that event that made us realize that this film was more than just a really cool story about a really cool program, but it was actually, it could be used as a catalyst to get this program implemented in communities across the country. So we're working um, with other places to, to get this movie shown. We did one in Texas, uh, we're doing one in New Mexico coming up in March, and we're still working to get this shown up in New Hampshire too, which was what I pitched during yep. Purpose. Oh, I mean, I think it'd be easy enough to get it shown during Porkfest next year. Yeah. Uh, but I think you'd want to show it somewhere where you could, again, get a bunch of cops and people whose right. minds need to be changed who aren't already on board with it to attend. Right. I actually had um, a conversation with a woman from the University of Vermont. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's as progressive and liberal as you can get, but she runs the restorative justice program there. And she happens to live in New Hampshire. So she wants to partner with us. Uh, because it's really important to us when we do these showings to have people from both the left and the right and the middle um, to, so that everyone understands what this program is about. It's, it's appealing to everyone, and that's really important. But, you know, the logic is not unlike that of the Free State Project, because the, the beautiful thing about restorative justice and restorative practices is it starts with the individual, and it comes from the bottom up, and it focuses on communities cooperating and really taking this one size it's all top-down government system back and trying to make it work for their community. So you don't have to wait for the right president to get elected. You don't have to wait for the governor to be on your side. 
you, you don't even need state legislators to, to act in most states. I mean, there may be some barriers in some states. This is very much about uh, personal responsibility and voluntary cooperation. And uh, to me, that's what's cool about the project is you, you don't you don't have to do politics to do this, but politics in the sense that you have to engage people that you wouldn't normally talk to. But that's that's how you get things done anyway. Like it's it's not it's not a bubble. And and bringing all those those sort of uh, key players to the table, it, I don't think it would work at Porkfest. I mean, we could we could show the doc at Porkfest. I think I, I think we actually have at some point. Have we ever shown that doc? No. Okay. I Terry's Terry always <laughs> tells me when I'm wrong. <laughs> but but you, you get my I, point. I feel like people at Porkfest would enjoy it, but it's not going to accomplish what you want to accomplish right. with it at Porkfest. Yeah. You're speaking to the echo chamber of people who already agree with you. Because when I hear your pitch, when I hear you talk about it, what I hear is somebody finally pitching the solution to the like age-old conundrum of what do you do with the criminals in, anarch in anarchist, your anarchist utopia. Right. Like yeah. The moment you create a prison, you're the government. Um, so what do you do for criminal justice system in an anarchist system? Um, even Karn Rost, one of the world's leading advocates for practical anarchy, who travels in around Africa and the Middle East, helping people set up voluntary anarchist systems, doesn't have a straightforward answer for that one. And I think things like this are showing that it can work in a system with government at a local level. So it can work in a system without government as long as people are voluntarily right. embracing it and embracing not just the system of it, but the ideas of it. Because to me, one of the biggest problems with our criminal justice system as it stands today is that we still call it the Department of Corrections, but we punish people when they get out. Once people have done their time, served their sentence, you still can't get a job. It's, it still shows up in your background check that you, you can't get a job. You're prohibited from working for anybody with a government contract. It makes it so much harder to get on with your life and fix your life after the mistakes you've made and after you've served your sentence. It's not correcting anyone. Like you said, it's incentivizing recidivism. Right. And, and by the way, um, one of the key phrases that it took me a while to figure this out because I'm I'm slow, but I'm a, I'm a slow learner. And apparently that's not a bad thing all the time. But <laughs> Um, there has to be a harmed party. Mm -hmm. And so right. if, if you think about that, that means that victimless crimes are no longer crimes under a system where there is um, someone that, that did something wrong and someone that was harmed by it. And that that takes a lot of this stuff just off the table, right? Right. No more possession charges. Uh, no, no more two-year sentences because you failed to pay a parking ticket for six months in a row, no more uh, financial burdening from people because your property taxes were late. Like so many of the issues that face that are what make criminal justice a class war in this country off the table entirely, because once the state's not the victim, there's no crime at all. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a cool idea, but um, it's funny. And Terry already said this, but, Originally, we just wanted to tell an emotionally compelling story about about people that that were given a second chance from this alternative system, and and because and and we started winning a bunch of awards, and and we won at Freedom Fest, and then the lockdowns came around, and all the film festivals that we were going to go to were canceled, and sort of spontaneously, and this is sort of a libertarian concept in and of itself 
um, we started showing it online and people like Seth said, oh, this is a tool to engage people. And, and that that's kind of shifted our, our overall strategy at Free the People where we're not just creating engaging content anymore. We're now thinking about, is this actually going to become a call to action, an activist tool, a way to turn um, engagement into social change? And well, you say you sort of exciting. You you have this community practicing this in Colorado, and you've gotten Shay to show it elsewhere, uh, Seth to show it elsewhere, his brother Shay's here in New Hampshire, uh, to show it elsewhere in Colorado. And you say you found somebody in Vermont who's heading up a program. Have you found any other instances of this being put into practice or any bite, I should say, from other groups about wanting to take this and ask for guidance and putting it into practice in their communities? By the way, there's quite a bit of yeah. this going on okay. all over the country and all over the world. Um, but um, Longmont happens to be a contained experiment that has yielded tangible results because a lot of it is still at the philosophical level. There's a lot of right. conversation about restorative practices. Um, and there's 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 a long tradition of this. Um but for, for, from our perspective, we're almost overwhelmed with the number of people that want to do something. And, and right now our model is, is really about, um, please go do it. And, <laughs> sorry, and, sorry, did you see his cat just, yeah. <laughs> Matt did a, um, as an aside, Matt did a, a Kitty on Liberty recording yesterday uh, with, with Matt Ridley about his new book on the origins of COVID and our cat uh, one of our cats did the exact same thing, just completely photo, you know, photo bomb or video no, bomb. I guess he jumped on my shoulders, <laughs> and and Matt Ridley was staring at me like, "What on earth is this?" She on? does this. She does this every night, and there is at least two people who've signed up for my Patreon in her name. Yeah. So fair enough. Yeah. So uh, she she is a v very much a regular camera bomb, um, but you know that's. Having a call to action that you're seeing people excited about taking and grasping a hold of is something really strange to hear coming from libertarians. Right. Yeah. Because usually the problem we're faced with is we have these great ideas and nobody wants to do the work. Yeah. Right. And and it's funny because my last job was very much about organizing people in, in very tangible ways. And um, Free the People started off in a very different direction, not, you know, not not at all uh, wanting to compliment people that are actually organizing on the ground, but that wasn't part of our our thing. And now, like, I almost feel guilty because I want to I want to go help folks figure out what to do once they get excited, um, because at that point it involves mechanics and it involves a lot of practical skills that um, um, are required to to move the ball over the finish line, and that's 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 something that is, is very different than storytelling, but all of that, like there is a, there is sort of a division of labor in social movements and it's gotta be both those things. And, and we need big brains too. Um, I suppose we need the occasional white paper. I don't know. No, no. <laughs> no. I, I've been on a, a binge lately of pushing the idea, uh, at least within the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire and locally here in New Hampshire with the Free State Project, since I've gotten involved in helping run social media and planning events for the Free State Project, of embracing like Rick Falkvinge's swarm wise as like I've I've re-termed it political anarchy. Like all these anarchists who want complete and utter decentralization of government, but 
every time it comes to like actually doing something, they're waiting for direction, waiting to do what they're told, waiting for someone else to organize and pull the strings. And so I've been taking Swarmwise and repitching it as political anarchy. If you're really an anarchist, go do it. Yeah. Like show me that you're an anarchist by getting in the street and doing what you want to see done. Because what you want to be done, what your biggest priority might not be my biggest priority. Right. So yeah. I might not be motivated to help you with it, but if you can find three other people who are as motivated for you, go and do it. And I'll fork on mine. And in the process, we're both making the world better. That was uh, when, when we were involved with freedom works and, and, and actual tea party organizers, the thing that our opponents in both the Republican party and the left never appreciated was that it was a leaderless movement in the sense that we had thousands and thousands of leaders doing exactly what you're talking about. And that's why it was so powerful. And they, they so wanted to find the leader and chop his head off. And they might've tried to chop my head off in that process. Um, but I, I kept trying to explain to them, this, this is a real social movement. This is not, um, manufactured from the top. You can't actually create that kind of power from the top down. Um, that's our whole philosophy. But but your entire model that you just described is just individual responsibility. Like, yep. you know, be, be the change, take the responsibility, do what you're best at doing and partner with people who can do things that you can't do. Like this is this is how civil society works. Yeah, I think of it like I don't think I would have any success at trying to be able to implement a restorative justice program in the city I live in, just because the size and scope and right. of something of that order of magnitude and just the nature of it being an urban city. But like if somebody like likes the idea and lives in a small town that already has a low crime rate and an overinflated police budget for what they really are, this sounds like something that everyone in a rural community should be grasping onto. Yeah. Like yeah. there's no reason to send someone to a county jail for a DUI. Right. If they didn't hurt somebody. And if they did hurt somebody and can make up for it, sometimes the social pressure is stronger than the jail sentence. For yeah. sure. For sure. And and you know, creating new programs that work um become something that can be exported to to bigger projects and bigger communities. <laughs> Uh, with more complex problems. I, I happen to think this works everywhere. Um, and the only way to get it from theory into practice is to take these sort of role models and say, okay, what about Longmont, Colorado would actually work in your community? And it's it's going to be different. Um, but the principles and the, the you know, some of the, the best practices certainly apply. And it's going to be up to that community to figure out how to make it work. Well, as it is up to every community, and we might see different variations of it if it does right. catch on. And the the one thing Gary Johnson did say in 2016 that I actually like really liked as a form of messaging, um, which today I, I've repurposed it for a secessionist argument, is when he said, if you take the federal government out of the equation, you'll have 50 different states of innovation, 50 laboratories of innovation, each trying to come up with best practices, and the things that work will rise to the top. And if you think about it, things like this, because Texas, it, if we were to balkanize North America and have 50 states, I doubt Texas would be on top of the list of states trying to do something like this. But maybe some of the smaller, more progressive states might latch onto it out, the, out of the gate. And we could see that it does work on a larger scale. 
Um, and that goes for a bunch of other things too, including all the other issues Free the People's working on, the Liberty, Libertarian Party's working on, the last vestige of the Tea Party Republicans care about. Um, it's all about innovation, competition, and like seeing best practices rise to the top. Yeah, and it 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 probably also um, strikes at the heart of you know every bad government program has a coalition of interests that feed off of it and. And when we talk about the prison industrial complex, and I'm, and when you talked about Texas, I thought about that. That there's a reason why these bad policies, the the drug war and mass incarceration and mandatory minimums, all these things we fight against, they exist because of a political coalition that that greases the right palms, right? So when you come back with a compelling story and a successful model that's working um, without the permission of the lobbyists in, in Austin or whatever state you're working in, um, it's, it's, it's literally revolutionary. And, and that's, to me, that's the kind of revolution we want. We want to prove that our theories work in practice. You know, the biggest problem with libertarians is that we have these theoretical, well, not, maybe not the biggest, (laughs) We, we have lots of problems, but, you know, one of our challenges in explaining how, how freedom and responsibility works is that so many things have been taken over by the government. So when you're trying to explain how education would work in, in a freedom-based system, uh, too often you're talking theory and not being able to point to, well, just look at what those folks have done over there. Um, and so part of what we do at FreedomWorks... And, uh, Oh, not freedom works free the people <laughs> is uh old habits yeah we we try to we try to find things that are actually working and people that are actually making them work and then have them tell their story yeah absolutely one of the things you list on the website of free the people as one of your big core main issues is stopping political cronyism and that's the heart of that like the the interests that keep bad practices alive how do we stop cronyism without getting into the system? This is a perfect segue to something I definitely want to bitch about tonight. Uh, okay. We're, we are 22 months into lockdowns. Um, you, you, may, you may care about this subject as well. And it's, A little bit. It, it's, this, <laughs> it's this iron triangle of, of interests, um, both inside government and in corporate America, um, that are that are sort of feeding off of this system, and I I happen to think, and and we we could spend the next hour just talking about that the way that um, um, you know that you know we all complain about social media censorship, but if you think about the process of buying ads on say Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, who do you think the big spenders are right now? Pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. Where where did pharmaceutical companies get this monopoly um, where they actually get to force people through government to, to consume their product? Um, they got it through Fauci and the NIH and Congress and all that stuff. Um, this has created a system of haves and ha- Terry's wondering where the fuck I'm going with this <laughs> right now. Every night, honey. <laughs> There's a, there's this whole there's this whole new system of haves and have-nots, right? The laptop class, yep. the pajama class, versus people that are told randomly whether or not they're essential, 
whether or not they're going to be allowed to work based on their vaccination status. And I think that how do we deal with cronyism? I think there is a counter-revolution brewing that says you should be free to work, that says you should be free to speak your mind, that says you have the freedom of control over your own body and what you put in it. And these are not just libertarian principles. These are human principles that that transcend party or, or politics or ideology. And, and you're seeing these massive protests all over the world. And, and even in the United States, we're, we're sort of slow to catch up to this. I think there is very much a new coalition that is um, almost, not, not entirely, but really focused on cronyism. And people are sort of in a visceral way realizing that this collusion between corporate America and big government is a real thing. It's a dangerous thing. And it's screwing over the rest of us. And, and to me, that's how you do it. But that's how you do anything. It's, it's about people understanding how the system works and saying, no, that's not good enough. The crazy part to me with the vaccines and the cronyism with the vaccines, I never thought in, I never thought in my life as someone who grew up in Massachusetts, I worked for Scott Brown, I worked for Mitt Romney, I moved to New Hampshire as a libertarian. I never thought in my life there'd be something I was standing next to and agreeing with Elizabeth Warren on. <laughs> but when Donald Trump appointed the director of Project Warp Speed, I can't remember or pronounce his name. Um, he was the chairman of the board of directors of Moderna. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boom. And which had just had their first public offering. And they were a small company that had been just a small research club for 10 years who had never put a product on the market, had never passed a clinical trial in their 10-year history. All of a sudden, this chairman of their board is the director of Project Warp Speed, dumps $100 billion of tax money into their company and never divested his stock that went from $12 a share to $480 a share in the course of three months. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's really scary. I mean, with the Defense Production Act, you know, uh, Biden is controlling the means of production, right? And and you know, I was half jokingly saying, well, at least they don't own the means of production. But you know, all of this money that they poured into Moderna and and Pfizer, it's like, oh shit, I guess they do own them too. So owning and controlling the you know production, that's the definition of uh, something. Yeah, I think I saw eight over eighty four percent of Congress is invested in Pfizer, <laughs> like at, at, to at least some degree, um, like that kind of cronyism. And we see Martha Stewart goes to prison for insider trading, and Diane Feinstein. Nobody even asked the questions when she sold off a bunch of stock the night before passing a bill that tanked it. Right. Yeah, but it to me that's it's it's an opportunity, and and you know. Um, I think it's going to create an interesting uh, new political coalition. And, and this is one of the reasons it's not just sort of our, our natural instinct. We want to talk to everybody. And, and I'm, not, I'm not really interested in, in shrinking the tent. I want to grow the tent. So we spend a lot of time talking to progressives. And I'm, I'm really interested in progressives like, say, Tulsi Gabbard or Glenn Greenwald, who have been saying really interesting things, not at all unlike what we all just said. Right. And and I, I see um, some conservatives saying the same thing, but I see the machine in Washington, D.C., Republicans and Democrats just sort of feeding off of the rest of us. And 
And, and, you know, we could be pissed off about that. We should be. This has been a humanitarian crisis, um, certainly the biggest one in my lifetime, with the possible exception of, of the permanent wars in the Middle East. Um, but it's also an opportunity to engage people, um, like we've been saying all night, people that are never going to read the books we read, and we're never going to engage with them if we just use the same uh, libertarian diatribes that we use. But um, instead of just being frustrated about what's going on, think about the potential of creating this, this mass movement based on a few principles that we all agree on. And, and another libertarian disease, as you well know, is this, this tendency to just say, um, to focus on, oh, he only agrees with the 80%. He only agrees with the 99%. So I'm going to attack him until he leaves on that 1%. Right. I mean, he's really good, except, you know, he still walks on government-funded sidewalks. So he's really a horrible person. Yeah. So I, I just think um, we should think big. That's that's all I'm saying is we, we should think really big um, because I think our values are fundamental human values. They're not they're not exclusive just to Americans. They're not exclusive just to Republicans or Democrats. They're they're things that that animate people. Not everybody. There's some there's some in genetically proclivities towards totalitarianism in, in all the Karens and Kens out there. But the rest of us, we should engage. I, I love that point because like I've only voted for two Democrats. In my life, I, I grew up Republican. I grew up in a hardcore Christian conservative household, oddly enough, in Massachusetts. Um, and the only two Democrats I've ever voted for have been since I moved to New Hampshire with the Free State Project as a libertarian. And it's weirdly enough, it was a local woman who was running for register of probate as a Democrat. And I disagree with everything she's ever campaigned on for every office she's ever run for, but she was running for a local office on the platform of abolishing that office. Like I'm all in for that one. I don't care that you want universal health care and you love Bernie Sanders. You want to do the exact thing I want done in that office. Uh, so I can vote for you. And then the other was I voted for Tulsi Gabbard in the primary. Yeah. Because while I disagree with her on a whole lot of stuff at the time, this one big single issue that I cared about was ending the war. Yeah. And even we couldn't even get libertarian candidates who were both strong on ending the war with a plan on how to do it. Tulsi was the only one who came up with, we're going to end the war and here's how. Right. And she has credibility on that subject as someone that has served. Mm -hmm. And that, that get back to an earlier point you made, like yeah. she, she can tell the story. Right. And I will say she has started to come around on me since she lost a primary and is no longer in Congress and no longer feels compelled to play the game with the DNC. I think, um, I, I think she posted a whole big video series this week on TikTok about how Kyle Rittenhouse did nothing wrong. Wow. Uh, and defending Kyle Rittenhouse's, uh, self-defense acquittal and then going on about the left trying to polarize people with uh, accusations of racism rather than the examination of facts i'm sitting there like hearkening back to when she roasted kamala harris during the debate and like how much better would the world have been just over the past 18 months if somebody who clearly has the wherewithal to say what they think rather than what they're told had won that election right well she um 
we probably all agree on this, but she was she was Ron Pauled. Yep. And and the the Democratic machine was never going to let her her win the primary and similar to to the way that the RNC disenfranchised uh, Ron Paul activists at the 2012 convention. So um, it's it's interesting to see people when they're sort of liberated of of the party apparatus. Um, I I think she's probably becoming who she is now um, in a way that that's going to be interesting. We're going to disagree with her on some important things, but we're also going to agree with her on things that we didn't think we would have agreed with her on. And to me, that's that's why. I mean, it, yes, it'd be nice to have a third party that was was robust and competitive, but we could also just get above politics and focus <laughs> on, on people, on people and values, right? Yeah, if only. Yeah, if only. <laughs> is, that, is that is that radical? Are we allowed to say this on that's, this show? That's crazy. I mean, we're crazy. seeing it, it, but but. We're seeing it. We're seeing people leave the major parties. It, it's happening, and it might not be happening as fast as we want, but like when Justin Amash left the Republican Party, it kind of started to trigger stuff. Like, I'm not surprised that it was like Thomas Massey didn't follow him. I'm not surprised that other Liberty Republicans didn't follow him because it was a dangerous step for him to do so. But now you have Tulsi walking out of lock, lockstep with the DNC. Now you have Andrew Yang, who straight up abandoned the Democratic Party and has started his own populist party in New York, um, throwing out Democratic principles, saying we we care about what people want, not what your party wants. And it's gaining momentum and it's gaining steam. And I used to say I didn't. We were heading towards the fracture of one of the two major parties, and we were going to end up in a four-party system once one of them broke until a new major party emerged. I'm not sure that we're not heading towards just the collapse of the two-party system altogether. Yeah, I mean, look at how many people are registered. There's more registered independents now than there are either Republicans or Democrats. So you're, you're seeing it happening already. But you have more non-voters than voters. Right. People, people, not even not even people just, just don't register to vote and don't participate. There are more registered voters who don't show up to the polls than registered voters. Right. Um, we just had an election here in Manchester, New Hampshire, and a friend of mine was running for alderman, a very strong libertarian candidate running for city alderman, lost by 50 votes. Uh, but in a city of 200,000 people, we had 10,000 people show up to vote. Wow. This is why, um, this is why, like, this this has been like, the worst 22 months for me just in terms of watching what the the government and the power mongers are doing to people. And, and I, I'm, I'm frustrated that, that libertarians didn't have a united voice on this from day one. Um, we should have, and, and we missed an opportunity when we weren't there, but um, I, I remain an optimist. I always think that there's a counter-revolution, and I, and we have to think that way because because we we know that that liberty solves problems, and it's it's robust. It's a robust system that that survives all sorts of horrible things that that um, government tries to do to stop it. Um, so I I tend to be sort of optimistic about the future because there's a tremendous opportunity here. And maybe it's a class of collapse of the two-party system. Um, maybe it is people just leaving politics altogether. I don't know what it is. Well, um, I don't necessarily think it was a bad thing. 
it was a bad thing that libertarians were not united from the from the get-go on such a major issue on the single largest encroachment against liberty in our lifetime it's a bad thing that libertarians didn't take the lead sure i don't think it's a bad thing long term because the one of the oldest literary tropes in history is that adversity breeds strength and what we've seen come out of the division in the libertarian movement is clear lines where you're seeing who the people are who care about their own power and titles and recognition and being the big fish in the small pond and who the people are who care about fighting the state and we are seeing people coalesce around the groups that are doing things as opposed to the groups that are just trying to preserve their status quo and we're seeing things like the libertarian national committee lose traction lose a lot of the support they've had and they've spent 50 years building for things like the Mises caucus for things like the free state project for things like the New Hampshire Liberty Alliance organizations that are actually doing the work and actually putting, bringing the fight to the state. Well, that's uh, we call it beautiful chaos. Yeah. Um, be, because, you know, we, we think that, that, you know, free people work stuff out yep. and they innovate and they solve problems and, and even under the most um, horrific oppression, you know, you can go go and study some of the amazing things that happened in totalitarian societies where, where free people emerged victorious. So I, I, I think this always happens, but, um, you know, anyone watching this, it's it's up to you. No pressure, but, <laughs> but you're, you're John Galt and, and you got to fix it. And if we all take that attitude, we're going to fix it. I love it. I think that's the perfect place to end. It's been an hour. You guys have been incredible. Thank you Thanks. so much for joining me. Where can everybody follow you? Uh, so you can find us. Um, our website is Free the People. You've got our Twitter up there, um, Instagram, free, uh, Facebook. We're all over. Matt all lives on uh, Twitter, so you can always find him. I do too. It's <laughs> fine. Tw Twitter is a great and terrible place all at the same time. Um, but thank you everyone for watching. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, leave a comment in the comments. Let us know what you think. Leave a voicemail through Spotify or Anchor if you have any questions you want uh, followed up on in a future episode. But until next time, be free. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in and joining us tonight. Make sure you hit that like button and leave a comment below to let us know your thoughts. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and hit that big red subscribe button on YouTube and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live. If you enjoyed this content, you can join our production team on Patreon by following the link in the description. And don't forget to follow on social media and join our community Discord channel by following the links in the description as well. The best part of all of this is the community that we're building and growing. So go ahead and join us. And thanks once again to our awesome sponsors and patrons for making all of this possible. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. So until next time, everybody, be free. <laughs>